You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Rick Kleffel, and I'm a host of the Agony Column on NPR affiliate KUSP. You can hear the show on Sunday nights from 6 to 7 p.m. when each week I interview authors from all across the spectrum, like those we have here tonight, whom I'll introduce shortly, um, from biographers, scientists, science fiction writers, mystery writers, you name it, as long as I like their books and I think they're of sufficient quality, I will talk to them and you can hear some frank and interesting conversations on NPR affiliate KUSP and its pledge drive. So if you go there now to KUSP.org and press the big blue button and give them a buck and say you listen to my show, they'll actually know that people out there read, which will shock them silly. <laughs> Welcome to the Capitola Book Cafe. And tonight we're doing a version of my show live, and we have two wonderful, incredible authors with us tonight. Um, we have Graham Hancock. He's the author, his newest book is Entangled. He's also the author of Fingerprints of the Gods and Supernatural and a parcel of wonderful alternate archaeology no books of no works of nonfiction. And come on over, Jim, come on down. This is Jim Nesbitt. He's one of America's best kept secrets, one of America's best mystery writers, one of America's best writers of the imagination. He's his newest novel is Windward Passage. Thank you for joining me, Jim and Graham. Thank you. Now, the reason we're all here, all of us, is because we read. And as a result, we need to buy books. <laughs> so I'm hoping that everyone here will want to buy one or more books by these wonderful authors once we, during the show or after. If we run out of this pile here, there's more of Entangled behind the desk. Now, the format of tonight's show is going to be we're going to have each author read, and then we're going to have a wonderful conversation about how they do, why they do, what, when they do it, and how they write, where it comes from, and what they intend for their audience. And then we'll invite you to join us and talk as well. So with no further ado, uh, let's have uh, Graham Hancock read from Entangled. Hello? Am I, am I on the air here? Oh, good. Well, this is from chapter four uh, of uh, Entangled. And uh, one of my two protagonists, uh, Leone, who lives in 21st century Los Angeles, the other protagonist, Rhea, lives 24,000 years ago in the Stone Age. Uh, Leone has um, overdosed on OxyContin and has died, uh, a near-death near experience. This is, this is the kind of fiction we're having tonight where the main character dies at the beginning of the book. Leone was hovering in her bedroom close to the ceiling like one of those helium-filled party balloons. Hmm. There were cobwebs up here that Conchita must have missed when she cleaned yesterday. Left dangling amidst threads of dust and lint, a fat black spider and half a dozen paralyzed bugs swayed back and forth in the gentle afternoon breeze that drifted in through the open picture window. Avoiding the wildlife, Leone tried to brush the webs away with her fingers but couldn't do it. 
Her hands just seemed to pass through them. Poor Conchita was going to get her ass fired when Mum noticed the mess. In a detached way and without fear, Leonie knew that something odd was happening to her, but didn't want to deal with it right now. Then she looked down and, oh my God, there on the floor was her body, sprawled like roadkill, coke snorter's nose buried deep in the thick pile carpet, skirt hitched up over her left butt cheek. And on the table beside her bed was a glossy magazine dotted with a few telltale flecks of oxycontin powder. So she hadn't got it all then, a steel nail file and a rolled up hundred dollar bill. Might as well have a sign on the door saying, drug abuser lives here, she thought. She zoomed down for a closer look at herself. Was she dead? In a coma? The questions weren't urgent, and Leonie was surprised to discover how little she actually cared about the fate of this prone, intimately familiar, and yet somehow alien body which seemed reduced already to skin and bones, meat and offal. Besides, and this was totally fucked up, she had some other kind of body now. She had transparent hands that could not sweep away cobwebs. She could see her limbs, feet, and flesh, but they were not solid. Overall, there was a strange sort of diaphanous insubstantiality about her, an aerial quality as buoyant and ephemeral as a glistening soap bubble. She found nothing threatening or fearful in this, quite the opposite. She felt she was floating on a wave of light and joy. Still, surely she must summon help. While there was even the faintest hope, surely she couldn't just let her meat body expire, could she? And what would happen to her aerial body if she did? Perhaps she would just go pop and disappear. With that thought, Leonie floated up out of the bedroom window, down into the sunlit garden and through the open French doors into the kitchen where her parents' shouting match had ceased. Now they were seated at the table in their usual positions, mom at the head, dad at the side to her right, talking in lowered, serious voices. Listen, guys, Leonie told them. I'm dying upstairs. You've got to get me to hospital right now. They paid no attention. Dad, she reached out to shake his arm, but it was as though her fingers had closed on air. She made a grab for mom and was able to push her hand right through her chest and through the back of the chair behind her, fucked up. Leonie ascended and hovered over the middle of the table, looking down at the two of them. They seemed uglier than usual, like Komodo dragons in human masks, and their whispers had harsh, sinister undertones. She felt a mild but insistent force tug at her. She surrendered and began to drift back towards the garden when her father said something that drew her right back. Leonie's putting us at risk. Pretty soon she's going to blurt it all out to some reporter. My daddy made sex with me. Mom mimicked in a high-pitched childish tone before adding in her own voice, little bitch, it's going to hurt the business. We drove her to this. Just for an instant, dad sounded remorseful until mom butted in with a fervent look in her eye. It's what Jack wanted, she said. Exactly, Dad replied, brightening. It's what Jack wanted. He delivered his side of the bargain, Mom said. We delivered ours. Now it's time to clear up the dead wood. Leonie's mind reeled. She'd been plagued with doubts for years about the sick, thi the sick things she remembered her dad doing to her in two widely separated episodes of sustained attacks during her childhood. Had any of it happened? She'd so much wanted to believe it was just mad sexual nightmares and her imagination running wild as Dad had told her again and again. But now here was Mom seeming to confirm that it had all been real and that she'd been raped because that was what some guy called Jack wanted. So who was Jack? And what did Mom mean about clearing up the dead wood? 
As Leone struggled to find answers, the force pulling on her aerial body grew stronger, much stronger. For an instant, it was like riding the lead car of the roller coaster at Santa Monica Pier, only a thousand times faster, plunging and soaring through vast domains of sky until, woomph, she was back in her bedroom again, hovering directly over her meat and bones. There was someone else on top of her as well, Conchita. She'd come back with a broom to dust the cobwebs, screaming for help between bouts of mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. With a hair-raising hair plunge of the roller coaster, Leone drew a huge, gasping breath and was impelled back into her body. The last thing she heard before she lost consciousness was Conchita dialing 911. Then Leone was hovering at ceiling height again, but not in her bedroom. This was more like it. They'd got her to a hospital at last. It looked like an operating room, with lots of sexy male doctors in green scrubs scurrying around. And in the middle of all the action, stretched out on a gurney, hooked up to an amazing array of tubes, wires, and bags, was Leone's poor, pale body. The docs were working at a frantic pace, doing things to her, and all of it was mildly interesting, of course. Then, what was this? Mad panic all round. Shouted commands, whine of an electric shock machine charging up. Looked like her heart had stopped. Over on the array of monitors, Leone could see a flat line on the ECG. Heard the high-pitched buzz of the alarm, and became aware again of that powerful gravitational compulsion that had drawn her back into her body earlier. Only this time, it seemed to be pulling her in the opposite direction, away from herself, and into a staggering and awe-inspiring vortex of light that opened like a tunnel at her side. She just had time to think, oh my god, this is really interesting, when she found she was already inside the revolving tunnel and floating through it. At intervals, its walls were marked with large geometric grids, something like windows with multiple panes, in each of which faint images of people and places glowed. Leone was able to slow her forward motion to examine the images and discovered that if she concentrated on them, they first sharpened and then dissolved into vivid memories. Except the image she was concentrating on now couldn't be a memory because nobody could remember what happened to them when they were only a few hours old, could they? Instead, the panel showed her a scene that she had tried to imagine all her life, but somehow it was now infused with all the solidity and shadow of an observed event. It is night. Rain spits down. A single streetlight casts its orange glow into a mean alley. The alley is closed at one end by a high brick wall topped with jagged shards of glass. A barred and rusted iron door is set into the wall, and piled on either side of it are heaps of bulging plastic trash bags slick with rain. A young woman, blonde, pale, a livid bruise on her cheek, dark circles under her eyes, slips into the alley. Furtive, she looks back over her shoulder as though she fears she's being followed or observed. Dangling from her hand is a black plastic bag containing some small object, and now with further hunted glances, she places it amongst the rest of the trash and hurries off without a backward glance. The bag is not tied closely, merely gathered at the top, and as the woman's footfalls echo away, something stirs within it and utters a feeble cry. The bag flops open, and rain leaks onto the wrinkled face and blue eyes of a newborn babe. The babe, Leone knew, was herself, the child nobody wanted. In the next panel, she had reached two years of age. She was wearing a little print dress and was seated on the floor looking up at a TV set in a Los Angeles orphanage where all her first clear memories began. Here she was at three, out for a day with a family, hoping they might adopt her. She so much wanted to live in a real house with toys that were hers, with real parents, but it didn't happen. 
Another panel, another visit, another rejection, the child nobody wanted. Now she was nearly five, quiet, withdrawn, friendless amidst the crowd of other children. She sat alone with a crayon and a sketch pad. She always loved to draw. The next panel showed her big moment a few months later, when after a sudden rush of interest, she was adopted by Herman and Madeline Watts. They weren't rich. The meteoric rise of Dad's business began right after Leonie's adoption, but she remembered how the house they'd lived in then in East Hollywood had felt to her like a fairy tale palace. Here she was at seven in their first Beverly Hills home, her best year. Mom and Dad must have wanted her, otherwise they wouldn't have adopted her, would they? They gave her so much, a tree house, all the pets in the world, a little car with a real engine to drive around the grounds, closets full of clothes, makeup, zillions of pairs of shoes. She felt like Cinderella at the ball. Now she was eight, the beginning of the bad times. She was asleep in bed in her cozy room. Suddenly someone grabbed her hair, jerking and shaking her, and she awoke with a scream. It was Dad. He had no clothes on. In the glow of the nightlight, his eyes were blank as stones as he clambered on top of her, still gripping hold of her hair. She sh struggled, screamed, what's happening, what's happening? Dad, no. And he cuffed her face hard with his free hand, making her head spin. He was heavy. He sprawled over her, forced his knee between her legs and groped her. She screamed, Mom, 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 very loud. But Mom didn't come to her rescue. She didn't come once during the whole year of terrifying nighttime visits. Now Leonie was nine. She was in the car with Dad. He was explaining to her that the rapes had never happened. And at some level, she did believe they were just bad dreams and her imagination. The other problem, the damage to her body, was because she went a little crazy sometimes and hurt herself in her private parts. In the next panel, she was 10, on a family day out with her parents. Adam, their own biological child, they called him the miracle child because of Madeline's previous infertility, was celebrating his second birthday. As she reviewed the scene, Leonie experienced again the pangs of envy and hatred she had felt that day at the way mom doted on Adam, giving her all her attention and was cold and neglectful uh, to her. Now she was 11, there had been no more rapes or dreams. She was in the schoolyard, mercilessly bullying poor Janet Lithgow, a smaller girl with a hair lip who later committed suicide. Now Leonie was 12, the bad times were back. She saw herself lying in her bed as though paralyzed with her dad's body, sweaty face averted, humping away on top of her. It's what Jack wanted. There had been 30 rapes that year and she hadn't screamed, not once. She just shut her eyes and let it happen and never complained. It didn't hurt so much that way and while he was inside her, she just pulled herself out of her body the way the blue angel had taught her. The blue angel who started to visit her in dreams around that time. Her secret friend who she never talked about, not to anyone, just the way she never talked about what her dad did to her. In the next panel, she was 14 on a shopping spree in Rodeo Drive. Mom and Dad had been showering possessions and money on her. She hadn't been raped for nearly two years and there had been no more dreams. Here she was at 15, naked, down on her hands and knees in a big bathroom at a party. Five guys she didn't know were taking turns at her. Now she was 16 on the floor of some other bathroom, sniffing up lines of cocaine, her nostrils red and her eyes stinging. And finally, here she was at 17, overdosing on OxyContin in her bedroom. Leonie could still see the operating room behind and sensed the rush and chaos surrounding the body on the gurney in there. But all that was fading, fading, ahead, getting closer. The other end of the tunnel was filled with an illuminated swirling fog through which tantalizing vistas of green sunlit meadows dotted with trees appeared and vanished again. Looks good, Leonie couldn't help thinking. Is it heaven? 
Then the figure of a woman materialized out of the fog filling the mouth of the tunnel, a tall, very beautiful woman beckoning to her, surrounded by a cascade of white robes, a smiling woman with jet black hair and indigo skin whose face was hauntingly familiar, like an old friend not seen for many years. The walls of the tunnel dissolved, full remembrance dawned, and Leone found herself in the presence of the mysterious being she called the Blue Angel. They were standing barefoot on grass wet with dew in the midst of a vast meadow. A herd of strange animals unlike any she had ever seen before grazed in the shadows of a nearby clump of trees. And there were two suns in the sky, one almost at zenith, one low down towards the horizon. Where are we, asked Leone. This is the land where everything is known, replied the woman. Shall we walk a bit? Graham Watkins reading, Graham Hancock reading from Entangled. I think that gives us plenty to start with. Jim, you've got two, I see two Rick. markers and two books. Yeah, since I have two books to push. Oh, good. <laughs> I thought I'd read like a page and a half from each one of them. Just a taste. Uh, it's a beautiful bookstore. Thanks for having me here tonight. Um, this novel, Lethal Injection, was first published in 1987, I think. Um, it was a long story. It fell out of print in 1990 in America. It's never been out of print in France, uh, etc. But now, just this year, I've got this deal going with Overlook for a new title and my backlist, it's, which is kind of embarrassing, a lot of books. A lot of embarrassing books, better say. Um, so I'll give you a taste of each one. There's no need in uh, you know, pursuing, going on and on there. Okay, let's see if I can make this fly. All right, um, this novel's from the point of view of a, an alcoholic prison doctor who has pretty much fallen out of the bottom of his own life. Um, and uh, the lethal injection referred to by the title has already taken place. He's not, of course, the doctor's not allowed to administer a lethal injection. Uh, but it, they do need somebody to declare the, admin, the, the, the recipient dead. Without a doctor say so, he's not legally dead. So it's like a $400 gig, so he took it. And um, now it's, it takes place in Texas, 1985. That was the only place uh, capital punishment was happening. That's not true. That's the only place lethal injection was happening, except Nevada, I believe, and that only much later. So I, I said it in Texas because... You know, it's a legal act in Texas and still is. They still lead the country in capital punishment and lethal injections. Not that I have an axe to grind. I'm not the one getting the lethal injection. So, suddenly Royce was drunk, very drunk and very tired. His wife's face was distorted. Her speech was loud and confused. He couldn't grasp the meaning of the words she was using. It was almost as if he couldn't hear her. He could hear her, of course. She was practically screaming. Years ago, he might have spent an hour reassuring her, calming her down until she would take a sedative, and then talking to her soothingly until she fell asleep, and he would put her to bed. But the effort had gradually faded. The years had worn him down. 
And besides, what difference did it make? He'd lately begun to admit to himself that she was pretty far gone. They'd long since ceased to live together as husband and wife. What had originally been intended as a child's bedroom had long since become his own bedroom. He hadn't minded, really. It was adjacent to the library. So long as he was in the house, she didn't bother him much, and they rarely crossed paths at night, once in a blue moon. <clears throat> it was the blue moons that nearly killed him. No rhyme, no reason, not even the full of the moon. But off she would go, for days at a time. Life was hell for them both, and he was afraid to leave her alone in the house. Often the fact that he had left her home in the house would set her off, but that never completely explained it. Nonetheless, the fact that he didn't like to leave her alone had played the devil with his medical practice. It wasn't all her fault, of course. His drinking didn't help things either. He'd done quite well once, now. That's why he'd quietly taken the corrections job. A few days a week at the prison tending stab wounds and rape victims. Then, is that then this execution business. Naturally, she'd found out. She knew everything, such as there was to know, everything but the truth. He'd never cheated on her, not once. Sure, he'd been, he'd been tempted, but he hadn't. Somehow, in spite of everything, though it had been years since they'd slept together, he hadn't taken up with any other women. What a fool he'd been. He looked at her, Pamela, his lovely wife. Her hideous jaws chewed the air, brain adding. His wife was brain. For the second time that night, he felt the unfamiliar sensation of tears rising in his eyes. He'd loved her once, perhaps he still did. He'd never cheated on her, never, never, never. He wondered if she knew that, and suddenly, looking at her in the bleary half-light of the kitchen, he realized that she probably knew damn well how it was. All this stuff about detectives and adultery and her 87-year-old senile daddy, but that didn't stop her. Nothing was gonna stop her. Least of all, her beloved husband. Her beloved husband, least of all. Roy stumbled out of the kitchen into the hallway and opened the closet door. He fell against it and in turn, and it in turn slammed against the front door as he leaned to pick up the Gladstone bag. When he had the bag in his balance, he turned and made for the bedroom. He heard the crash of dishes and glasses in the kitchen. She had long since destroyed their wedding china. They only bought cheap sets of glass and dishes now, every couple of months. Besides, that's, that was all they could afford. Business was bad. Royce's heart wasn't in it. He spent too much time drinking or at home to build up a good practice. That's why I'd taken the corrections contract, pick up a few extra bucks. Then they'd offered him $400 to be present while, the, while they executed prisoner 61204. When he got to his bedroom, he locked himself in with the bag. If the bag was safe with him, she could do herself no harm by it. He'd learned that the hard way a long time ago. He'd forced her to vomit the pills out of her stomach himself right there in the front hall next to the closet where he'd kept the bag as long as they'd owned the house. The stain was still on the carpet. Ever since, in his worst moments, every six months or so, a little voice would remind him of that desperate resuscitation, taunting him, asking him why he'd bothered. And yes, he was afraid of her. That's why he locked the bedroom door every night in his own house. A few drinks and he could get some sleep. A good lock and he could be sure he'd wake up. He'd learned that the hard way too.
So, uh, and it just gets worse. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Winwood Passage is infinitely more complicated, but here we have a, a hapless cop who is really up to his neck in what's going on in this book. And uh, every once in a while, he gets away to a place called Pirate's Cove, which is about halfway between uh, Tennessee Cove and uh, Mere Beach, just north of San Francisco on the coast. It's a, it's a little ex-smuggling spot left over from Prohibition. It's a lovely place. I spent many a night there myself, back when uh, what is now the Golden Gate Recreation Area was an abandoned military base. And you could walk around up there with your dog, and there was nobody there. There wouldn't be parking tickets on your truck when you got back to the trailhead. All that has changed. So, Oscar Few is the guy's name. Spent the night in Pirate's Cove. It, ha it happened to be a night of extraordinary clarity. After he'd, after he'd parked a month's worth of tapes under the century plant, he lay in his sleeping bag on the driftwood platform built over a crevice well above the tide line and counted stars and constellations. Some he could name, some he made up names for. Arcturus, which is a constituent star, and Bootes, Pygmalion, Virgo, Sagittarius, Cygnus, and Bellerophon, as well as Alice, the rabbit, and the Mad Hatter. Truth of the matter was, although he could spot a mad zealot in a radio-neutral suit from 40 yards, the only constellations he was really sure of were the, were the Big Dipper, Orion, and the Pleiades. He liked the story that the latter were named for the seven daughters of Atlas, who were metamorphosed into stars, despite the fact that only six of the stars are visible to the naked eye. This stuff is hard to keep up with, but not so hard as keeping up with the cavalcade of wonders, he reminded himself with a shudder, not to mention the net they somehow managed to cast. When was he going to meet a woman he could talk to? And there were Mars and Venus too, but they aren't constellations, which reminded him of a t-shirt which proclaimed Pluto, always remember. As to the rest, the crab, the bear, the archer, or was the archer also called Orion? He knew their names, but not those of their constituent stars. He also knew that in China, these same constellations were called rat, dog, boar, snake, dragon, horse, sheep, monkey, ox, like that, because, like the Greeks long after them, the ancient Chinese, too, had, you know, imagination and stars to foist it on. Nice and simple. That's the way he liked his explanations. Either way, the nice sky was a wonder seldom paid attention to these days by man or beast. And there goes a satellite. Someday they'll be orbiting prison platforms, and he would be possessed of an extraterrestrial vehicle identification scanner by which to log them. Gitmo 6 would no, no doubt be the name of one of them, although ex-cons in the know would refer to it as Tweaker's Roost. But except for the cassette tapes, he never carried any tech along on these solo hikes. He spent enough time dealing with tech. Besides, even cell phones didn't work out here, let alone non-existent ETBIS units, although, he sighed, that too might one day change. He lay on his back, gazing up at the night sky, nary a cloud above him, only the nimbus of San Francisco to the south, the city itself hidden by the loft of Coyote Ridge with the big Pacific rollers booming and seething against the rock outcrop 
that rose out of the surf on the south side of the little cove like a big stump. <clears throat> stump Rock, in fact, was its name. Maybe 30 feet high and not more than 10 feet across at the top, it wasn't a difficult climb at low tide, and in his long-gone youth, he'd spent many an hour up there sunning himself. Occasionally, he still took the trouble to wade out and climb it, the last time at least a year ago. He'd noticed that some long-gone pothead had left a pipe with a baggie up there in a cleft between rocks under a stunted coyote bush. He'd ignored them for a long time, noting that the marijuana had turned solid black with mildew until, noting, he he'd taken a look. Nothing special, a little pipe made of, made of plumbing parts. The weed was mostly shake and no bud with lots of seeds. A cop knows about these things. Two of the seeds had sprouted within the residual humidity of the bag and subsequently shriveled. All of it turned to dust at his touch. And this led him to the conclusion that, despite its proximity to a metropolitan area whose population exceeded six million people, it had been a long time since anybody had taken the trouble to scramble up to the top of Stump Rock. Stretched out on the platform above the surf, he could hear the intermittent buoy off Duxbury Reef, six or seven miles due west. He rolled over. After a minute or two, he picked it out, flashing green. He counted the flashes. One came every six seconds. It was a so-called whistle buoy, but the whistle sounded more like a forlorn moan its audio driven by and therefore subject to the whims of the swells, and he'd loved it since he was a boy. He fancied that it must be the most melancholy sound he'd ever heard. This thought caused him to remember a guy last seen pushing his surfboard off Abalone Flats at the northern end of Duxbury Reef, a mile or so, or so north of the buoy, and the reason for its placement. A curious bystander had asked him where the fuck he thought he was going because there was no surf to be had west of there for some 3,000 miles. I'm looking for a good dentist, the guy told him. Officer Few had read about it in the Chronicle, so it must be true. Take me with you, man, Few said to himself, not even half facetiously. Thank you very much. These are great readings. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>